Father, we, uh, we pray that you would open our eyes to your word. We ask that your spirit would be in our midst, that your spirit would be at work, and that you would help us to see exactly what you have for us here in your word. Lord, we, we love you and we praise you, and we trust that you are, you are working right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I think most of you in this room, you've probably heard something about the fact that Apple uh, was being sued of, you know, they're in some sort of lawsuit recently. A couple months ago, uh, this created some headlines. There were a number of, of people who started to complain and even started to file lawsuits with Apple because of the fact that um, they were being accused of it intentionally slowing down their phones through this, these updates, right? They would give you an update, you'd subscribe to the update, and then it would slow down your phone. And if you have an older phone, maybe an iPhone 5S or a, maybe even a 6, and if, if you've ever experienced this where recently you tried to, to start an operating system update, um, maybe you realized that after the update was finished, your phone was a little bit slower. Your phone began to lose uh, functionality. It began to lose its speed. And if you are an iPhone owner like me, I think you know what I'm talking about. You, you know exactly what I mean. If you own an older iPhone, sometimes you get the, the notification. It pops up and it tells you that you have, a, you have an update. And you're like, you know what, I'm just going to ignore that. Because I know the moment I download this, this new operating system onto my phone, my entire phone's going to slow down. And you're thinking to yourself, you know what, it, even though it's a few generations old, my screen's not broken. I've had a case on it the entire time I've owned it, and so it, you know it, it's practically brand new. It functions fine now, but you're fearful that as soon as you hit that little button, your entire phone is going to instantly become out of date, just in a moment. And that's why we don't want to go through with the update. And some of us, we even decide for months, even years. I've talked to people, you know, they have a really old phone, and they just never do any of the updates. We just would rather stick to the old way of doing things. We'd rather keep the old iPhone. We'd rather keep the old operating system. We'd rather not go through with, with the update and go through with all the hassle of your phone slowing down. Well, tonight, what we're going to be doing is we're going to begin a study in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews talks about a, a type of operating system update from an old covenant to a new covenant. From an old sacrificial system to a new one. From an old priesthood to a new one. But this update is not quite like the iPhone update. The transition that we're speaking of here, it doesn't just make the old way of doing things slower or, or more clumsy. It doesn't just make your the old way of doing things seem out of date. No, the new that comes through Christ makes the old way doing things absolutely obsolete. This new operating system makes the one that came before it completely obsolete, and because of that, this update is not optional. With a phone, you can say, I'm going to keep my old phone. I'm going to keep the old operating system, and I'm just going to deal with it, right? I'm just going to live with it, but that's not the way things work in God's economy. That's exactly the, the opposite of what we see here in the book of Hebrews. This update isn't optional. It's actually essential. You cannot go without this transition from the old way of doing things to the new. And as we'll see throughout the book of Hebrews, this is not optional. And in fact, it's detrimental to try to hold on to what you had in the past. This is detrimental to your heart, to your soul. If you try to hold on to what you had prior to coming to Christ, that will put your entire life in jeopardy, your eternal life in jeopardy. There are eternal consequences that we see here in this passage within the entire book of Hebrews. If you want to stick to the old way of doing things, you're putting your entire life in danger. So, that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. And before we get into our text, I want to spend some time giving you a detailed overview of the book. I want to talk about who the author is, who the, who the audience is, what the major themes are, so that when we come to this book and begin to work through it verse by verse, uh, we'll be able to understand what's going on here quite a bit better. So, 
Let's begin with the author. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, I'm going to save us a lot of time here because this has been debated throughout church history, and I'm just going to shoot straight. We don't know. We, we really don't know. Throughout, throughout the course of church history, all sorts of different options have been proposed, whether it's Apollos or whether it's Barnabas, whether it's Paul, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other, sorry, I'm blanking off the top of my head. Um, anyways, you have all these different options, people. Luke, that's what I was thinking of. Luke, yeah, you have all of these options of who wrote the book of Hebrews, but at the end of the day, we don't know. All we know is that it seems like the author was very close to Paul. That's all we really know. And here's, here's how we get there. Here's how we know that the author was close to Paul. Two reasons. The first one is when we just look at the book in light of its theological topics. When we look at what the book of Hebrews focuses on, we start to see a lot of similarities between the book of Hebrews and some of Paul's letters. So, for instance, think about the fact that in the book of Acts, whenever Paul would enter into a new town, he would go straight to the synagogue, and he would begin to reason with the Jews. And what would he do while he was reasoning with the Jews? He would go from from the Old Testament, and he would argue to the Jews in the synagogues that the word, or, or that Christ is the fulfillment of everything you find in the Old Testament. That was his tactic. And that's exactly what we see here in the book of Hebrews. Same exact thing. Author is just going from one topic in the Old Testament to another and showing how all of these realities in the Old Testament, they're all pointing forward to Jesus Christ. The second reason that the author of Hebrews is so close with Paul is because we see at the very end of the book, the, the author here, he claims to be close with Timothy. And if you remember Timothy, in, in chapter 13, it says he was close with Timothy. And uh, Timothy, if you remember, he was one of Paul's disciples. He, Paul mentored to Timothy as Timothy was a young church planter and a young pastor in the early church. So, even though we do not know who wrote the letter, we do know that this person was close with Paul. And that's important because when we're talking about whether or not a, a Bible has authority, or whether a book in the Bible has authority, one of the key components is, is this written by an apostle or is it written by, an, a, close, by a close associate of, apostle, of an apostle? Does that make sense? So the fact that this is a, an, an associate of Paul helps give us validity, helps us understand that this book is uh, authoritative by nature. The next thing I want to point out is the nature of the letter. Here's what I mean by that. What do I mean by the nature of the letter? Well, most people, most scholars, they'll point out that the book of Hebrews, in its original form, was not actually a letter but a sermon. It was a sermon that was preached to a congregation. And I'm not coming up with this originally. This is what most scholars who study the book of Hebrews have come to, and there's a couple of reasons for that. First off, in chapter 13, the author says that this is an exhortation. It's an exhortation that he's delivering to his audience. And when he says exhortation, that's the same word that we find in, in Acts 13, when Paul is giving a very long sermon. He refers to that, that sermon that he's giving to his audience as an exhortation. So the same word is used in both places to describe a sermon. So there's another reason, though, and this is, this is a little more technical, but when you look at the, the style of the writing, it, it um, resembles Greek rhetoric. In other words, it, it, it resembles the public speaking of the day. So there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of phrases like, we all need to do this. Let us all pursue this together. There's a collective sense in it. Uh, again, these are all just stylistic signs that this looks like something someone spoke and not necessarily something that was only written. So, let's keep moving. The audience. Who is the audience? I think this is a more important question than the author. Like I said, we don't necessarily know the author, but we need to know quite a bit about the audience in order to understand this letter. That's going to help us. Uh, the more we know about the audience, the better we're going to be able to understand the letter. So first off, here's what we know. We know that this is an, a group of individuals who knew a lot about the Old Testament. If you've ever read the, the book of, Hume, uh, of Hebrews, you, you know that there are all sorts of assumptions being made. 
like the, the preacher here, right? He's assuming that the people listening to him know a lot about the Old Testament. And so he's just name dropping one person after another, after another, whether it's Melchizedek. And you're like, I don't even remember Melchizedek. Who in the world is that? Or if it's someone, you know, in the, in the book, uh, in chapter 11, where he just goes person after person from Gideon to, to Solomon to David and just one person after another. And you're going, I don't know who any of these people are. He's talking about the high priest and just assuming that you know what the high priest does and how he operates. All this is getting at is that we need to seek to understand the Old Testament if we're going to read the book of Hebrews and get anything out of it. So that's, that's our goal. We need to seek to understand the Old Testament so that we can then understand the book of Hebrews. And unless we understand the Old Testament, we're going to be left wondering quite a bit. Like, what in the world is he talking about? This seems confusing. But the more we understand about the, the history of Israel and the Old Testament, the better we're going to be able to understand Hebrews. Now, the second insight that we need to understand if, uh, as, we're, as we're trying to trying to figure out who the audience was in the book of Hebrews is, we need to understand that they were tempted to abandon Christ. This much is clear. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we see that they are constantly wanting to revert to the way things used to be. They're resisting, they're resisting the software update. Right? They're just letting it linger there in their, in their notifications. They don't want to update to the new way of doing things. Essentially, this is a, a community who's entrenched in Judaism. They know Judaism, and they're thinking about, uh, about forsaking Christ in order to return to the Old Testament and cling to the teachings that they find in the Old Testament. They want to abandon Christ for Moses and Abraham. And that's why the author of Hebrews goes back to the Old Testament and shows the superiority and the supremacy of Christ. He's pleading with his audience to cling to Christ and not forsake him for what came prior to. He shows that the Old Testament was not to be taken on its own terms. Right? The Old Testament was to be taken, was to be taken as a precursor of what is to come. It's the revelation of Christ. And the Old Testament was always pointing in that direction. Now, I, I want to be, be honest. I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think many people in this room are probably too tempted to revert to Judaism. Maybe I'm wrong. If I am, you can come talk to me. I'd love to t- chat with you about that. I think that's a great conversation to have. But I don't think many of you are going, you know what? Like, I'm not so sure that Jesus is the new high priest. He doesn't fulfill the qualifications. When I read the Old Testament, I don't think he fulfills the qualifications. I'm going to revert back to the old way of doing doing things. I don't think any of you are at home surrounded by Jewish uh, family members who are trying to push us back to Judaism or going to work surrounded by your Jewish community and they're pushing you back to Judaism. I doubt that's happening. And that leads us to ask, well, then what in the world is the relevance of this book for me? How is this book relevant for us? If this, if this is a, a, a message to a bunch of people who are thinking about forsaking Christ and reverting to Judaism, then how are these exhortations directed at me? Well, you might not be tempted to convert to Judaism. I get that. But everyone in this room, I assume at one time or another, has been tempted to revert to your previous lifestyle. Whatever that lifestyle was, you were being pushed by some sort of temptation, whether external or internal. You were being pushed to revert to that old way of life that you once had. Wow, I feel cool. I think only cool preachers preach with a mic, a handheld mic. So now that I'm in that category of preachers, let's let's keep going. Okay. So, anyways, <laughs> you may feel that temptation to return to the old way of doing things, the old lifestyle. But the Book of Hebrews, it do, it doesn't matter. Even if if even if you are not being tempted to return to to Judaism, if you're being 
tempted to return to your old lifestyle, this book is for you. Because what we find here in the book of Hebrews is a constant reminder of the beauty of Christ. Over and over again, the author is is seeking to point our attention towards Christ, who is supreme over all things. He is is the supreme one. And I'm going to go back to the old way. right when I started feeling cool. Um, Okay, so let's keep moving. The use of the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. I've already hinted at this, but we need to point out that because the the audience was so tempted to revert to Judaism, there's constant references to the Old Testament throughout the book of Hebrews. From one story to another, from one verse to another, from one reference or or typological uh, portrait in the Old Testament to another, the author of Hebrews is constantly referencing the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. Just on quotations alone, like direct quotations, this isn't including references, this isn't including hints or or just uh, shadows or typological uh, portraits. Just on direct references alone, there's over 35 uh, quotations, direct quotations from the Old Testament. And for this reason, I think Hebrews is extremely helpful for us because it helps us to understand the larger picture. It helps us to get a better grasp of the larger text, how the entire Bible fits together, how the Old Testament is leading the way towards the New Testament, how the prophecies and and the foreshadows in the Old Testament lead us to understand the New Testament better. In a way, this is a a long Old Testament sermon that is an expositional sermon from one text to another, carefully explaining the way the Old Testament presented things and showing how it's always pointing towards Christ. What we see from Hebrews is that the more carefully you'll read the Old Testament, the better you will understand that Christ is the fulfillment of everything we find in the Old Testament. So, Let's keep moving. Themes. What are some of the themes that we see here? Well, as we've seen, the book of Hebrews, it's essentially a long sermon on the Old Testament. And throughout the book, the the author keeps focusing on theme after theme from the Old Testament. So, for instance, he focuses on angels and their prevalence in the Old Testament. He talks about Moses. He talks about the high priest. He talks about the theme of the promised land. He talks about the theme of the sacrificial system within the Old Testament. He talks about the Old Covenant and the temple. And what we see as we look through the book of Hebrews is that all of these themes are connected. Every one of them have a connection around one idea, and it's the supremacy of Christ. Christ is supreme over angels. He's supreme over Moses, over the high priest. He leads his people to a better promised land. He offers a supreme sacrifice. He offers a new and better covenant. He gives access to the heavenly temple that is far better, far greater, far superior to the earthly temple that was just presented in the Old Testament. Christ is superior. He reigns supreme and his accomplishments that he, that he achieves for the sake of the church, they also are supreme. And so we need to recognize that Christ is the message of Hebrews. But more than that, he is the message of the entirety of the scriptures. So, let's also take note of the fact that Hebrews is not only saying that the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. That's not That's not the only thing he's saying. Sure, that that is part of what he's saying, but there's more to it. He's trying to help us see that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Moses predicted the fact that a better leader would one day come. The sacrificial system, it it was a precursor. It was a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice that would come in Christ. 
the entirety of the Old Testament is preparing the way for the new. Garrett Cockerell, he points out that the Old Testament, by nature, it's anticipatory. It's anticipating something better. You can't just take the Old Testament on its own terms and pretend like it it exists without anything to come. Throughout the course of the Old Testament, it's always pointing towards something greater. So, we have a couple more themes that we need to point out. From from the book of Hebrews, we can summarize all of this with, with the idea that Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. If you've ever heard of John Calvin in, in, his, in his institutes, this was one of his main theological emphases when it came to his understanding of who Christ was. He wanted to point out that throughout the pages of Scripture, Christ is the prophet, the priest, and the king. So right here in verses 1 through 4, we see that he is the prophet. In other words, he is the final word from God. That was the prophet's role, to speak the words from God to the people. Christ, however, comes and he brings the final prophecy. He is the prophet of God. Not only that, but he is the priest. That's what we see within the book of Hebrews. Over and over again, the, the priestly order is viewed. They're, they're looking at Aaron, the high priest. They're looking at this individual who was a high priest called Melchizedek. What in the world is going on here? All it is is that the author of Hebrews is showing that Christ is the final priest, the greatest high priest. Not only that, but he is king. In chapter 1 here, we see Christ is none other than God himself. We'll get into this in a moment, but Christ is God, come himself to earth to reign. He's the king. Now, the final theme that I want to point out is the fact that the book of Hebrews is filled with extremely strong warnings. Warning after warning after warning comes in the book of Hebrews. And if you've tried to follow the whole, like, can you lose your salvation debate, the book of Hebrews is often gone to as as a reason to believe that you can lose your salvation. And here's what I want to point out. I, I do not think that you can lose your salvation. I think the scriptures are clear on that. But I want to point out that there's a temptation to come to Hebrews and just try to defend my position and to say, you can't lose your salvation, you can't lose your salvation, you can't lose your salvation, and you lose sight of the entirety of these warnings. But these warnings are here, and we can't pretend that they don't exist. We can't ignore them and just try to argue argue away the fact that they are severe and that they're strong. We can't pretend the fact that there are some severe warnings here. And when we just try to defend our position that you can't lose your salvation, you lose the weightiness. You lose the fact that these warnings are intended to sting. And so we will spend some time focusing on the warnings of Scripture. But we need to think about this for a moment. The reason these warnings are here is because the author is pointing out the fact that Christ is beautiful. Christ is beautiful and the audience he's speaking to is tempted to flee from Christ. And so when you paint Christ to, to be a beautiful king, well, that, that also implies that we have some stern warnings, right? There's always a, a, a backside to this. The higher Christ's beauty is painted, the more severe the warnings become. If this is who Christ is, the supreme God who reigns over history, the final prophet of God, the final priest of God, the perfect one. If, if that is what the New Testament and the New Covenant is all about, then that means if we flee from this salvation, if we flee from Christ, our situation is, is in a dire one. That is the reason these, these warnings are here in the first place. Christ is beautiful. And the more you understand who he is, the more you are going to understand that fleeing from him, forsaking Christ, is the worst decision you could ever make in your life. So, on that note, let's jump into our passage. I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 4. I realized today that I I don't think I'm going to be able to get to verse 4, so we'll save that for next week. But verses 1 through 4 do come as a package. 
So let's, let's begin in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, as we begin to look at these few verses, I first want to comment on them at large. I want to I point some things out from this entire section of verses. There are two verbs in these four verses that we need to understand. Two verbs. verbs. First off, in verse 2, we see that God has spoken. God has spoken. The second verb that we need to pay attention to is the fact that Christ has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In essence, everything we find in verses 1 through 4 builds around those two words, those two verbs, to sit down and this final word, God has spoken. And I also want to point out that when I approach the entirety of the book of Hebrews, I interpret the entirety of the book through these two verbs. This is the introduction to the entire letter. And he's preparing us. The author is preparing us for everything he's about to say right here. Everything he's about to say can be summed up in these two words. God has delivered his final word, Jesus Christ. And who is Christ? He is the one who is seated seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's a summary of the entire book. These couple of statements, they prepare us for everything that is to come. And you'll see this. We will filter the entire book through these couple of lines. God has spoken through his son, and the son has sat down at the right hand of the father after making a purification for sin. This is the final operating system. Christ, crucified. That's the final word. That's the final word from God. Christ is the final revelation from God, and he has accomplished everything that, Christ, that God has set before him. Namely, he has accomplished the redemption through his blood on the cross. And so with all of that said, let's begin with verses 1 and 2. Here we see that God has ultimately and finally spoken in his son, Jesus Christ. So while he has spoken in a variety of ways throughout the course of history, verse 1 says, In these last days, God has spoken a new word by his son. He is the final word. This is the last message from the very beginning. From the very beginning, this has always been the plan. A final word is coming. There is one who is coming who will step into history and he will bring the last word from God. See that from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Remember, all the way back at the very beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. This is the first book of the Bible. What do we find there? We find a promise in chapter 3, verse 15. It says that this woman is going to have a seed. She's going to have a son. And this son is going to crush the head of the serpent. That's a foreshadow of the fact that the woman is going to have a son. And eventually down the line, down the lineage, his name will be Jesus Christ. And he will crush the foe of humanity. He will crush Satan himself. And he will deliver the final death blow. Allowing mankind to live in the presence of God forever. Christ came as the final word of God, fulfilling all of the promises and all of the prophecies spoken throughout the pages of Scripture. And so because Christ is the final word, we have a few things that we need to reflect on. First, we need to reflect on the fact that we need to be extremely cautious when someone comes to us telling us that they have a new revelation from God. Christ is the final word. Christ is the final revelation. He is the one who's delivered the final word from God himself. 
I mean, legitimately, if someone comes to you and begins a conversation with the line, God told me blank, that's a, that's a siren. <laughs> In a sense, that is a red flag that should, that should let off a warning. That might sound harsh. I get that. There's a lot of churches, probably even in our area, who would say that they regularly, you know, you have pastors and congregants saying they regularly hear from God. But I need to point out that that is how cults start. I'm not saying everyone who who says they hear divine words directly from God, I'm not saying everyone who says that is part of a cult. But let me just point out, Muhammad, he began Islam. That was his that was his entire argument. I have a new word from God. He has given me something new. That was Joseph Smith's argument, founder of, of Mormonism. I have a new word from God. When someone comes to you claiming they have a new word from God, you need to be careful and you need to proceed cautiously. And to be frank with you, that's why I, I do believe that many of the individuals within the Pentecostal movement are extremely dangerous because they're constantly coming, coming to the froze, telling their people, telling their sheep, I got a new revelation straight from God. That's dangerous. That's why books like Jesus Calling, it, it's just dangerous stuff. Right? These books that tell you to just sit there and listen to what God tells you and then write it down as though it's direct revelation, a new revelation that's come directly from God. It's dangerous. And so we ask, where do we hear from God? We hear from God in the pages of Scripture. Why are we going to sit there and wait for God to speak to us? We just subjectively, you know, convert everything God tells us into something that we want to hear. Let's just go straight to the source. He has spoken, and he has spoken in his Son, so let's go to his word and see what he has to say. And now as we move forward, we need to recognize also that this is the paradigm through which the entire book should be interpreted. Christ is the final word. And so when we go to the rest of the book of Hebrews, we're going to see this constant comparison between what God has formally said through his prophets and what Christ has said ultimately in the New Testament. There's this constant comparison taking place throughout the book of Hebrews. Uh, of Hebrews. We see the preacher comparing the old covenant and the way things were under the old covenant with the new covenant and the way things are now. He compares the way the things were in the former days prior to Christ coming. He shows that in the, in the former days there were, there were um, uh, sacrifices that the high priest would offer every single day. Every day of the year there were sacrifices being offered but in the new covenant in Christ, there is one sacrifice that has been offered once and for all. He is the final sacrifice. In God's final revelation, we see that, that Christ is the perfect high priest. In the old covenant, under the old way of doing things, we saw that there was a lineage of high priests. None of them were perfect. All of them had their faults. So there's a comparison, a contrast going on between the old operating system and the new one a comparison between the way God spoke through, the, through his prophets in the former days and the way God has spoken now in Christ. It's better. The final word is better. That's his message. Think about it. Whenever a new product is released, we always just hope that the new product's better than the last one, right? We're, we're just hoping that they took the, the first version or the fifth version and they made the sixth version better. You know, keep all the things that were good about the fifth version and just add some better aspects or some better components to the sixth version. But what comes to mind? What's that product that comes to mind where they produced an, an updated version of it and you thought, man, this thing's horrible. Why did they update it? The first version was way better. The fifth version was way better than the sixth. I don't know. Maybe it was a website. Maybe it was uh, uh, some shoes. If you're like me, I think that the entire uh, era of the 1980s was a drastic downgrade from what we find in the 1970s, right? The music, for some reason, the 80s just decides to introduce like electronic synths that sound awful. Guitars, they decide, okay, we're going to just mass produce our guitars, send them over to 
these other foreign nations and have them do it for us, guitars come back far worse, far less superior. I don't know if you're into cars. I, I like Mustangs. And for whatever reason, you go from the 70s Mustang to the 80s Mustang, and it's just a joke, right? It's an absolute joke. It's like way smaller. It's square. There's no curves to it. Super lame. <laughs> but the point of the passage here is that there is no digression in the new revelation found in Christ. Every aspect of the new covenant, every aspect of this new high priest, every component of the new sacrificial system is far superior. They didn't keep anything that was good about the old and bring it to the new. No, God just demolished all of it and started afresh. So much so that all we have in the old covenant are just shadows of what was to come. These were not the substance. God did not keep any of, of the old covenant and the, the old sacrificial system. He made everything new in Christ. But this does lead us to ask a couple questions. Have you ever asked whether or not the New Testament is superior to the Old Testament? really? The New Testament's better than the Old Testament? Like, what we have in the New Testament is somehow superior to the Old? Well, the answer to that question, I do think, is yes, but that doesn't mean that the New Testament is the Word of God to a higher degree than the Old Testament. That's not what this passage is saying. It doesn't mean that we should not read the Old Testament. Again, that's not what this passage is saying. In fact, as I've already pointed out, the book of Hebrews is essentially just a long commentary on the Old Testament. We should read the Old Testament. We should recognize its benefits. But the reality is, is that in Christ, with the final revelation, now we can understand the Old Testament better, more fully. We're more capable of understanding the details and the intricacies of everything we find in the Old Covenant and in the Old Sacrificial System and the Old Priesthood. Think about when you read a complicated novel with a complicated plot line. And sometimes it helps to go all the way to the end and just read the conclusion. It doesn't make for suspenseful reading, but at least you can enjoy the reading as you're going through. But it helps you once you understand where this thing is going. You can now make sense of the plot. Make sense of the details that you find throughout the course of the book. Once you understand the conclusion, now you can make sense of everything going on at the beginning of the book. The same thing is true within the pages of Scripture. As we understand the conclusion, the final revelation, the final word that comes through Christ, now we can understand the Old Covenant. Now we can understand the New Testament or the Old Testament. But here's another question. So if the New Testament is better, what makes it better? Why is the final revelation superior? Well, the superior aspect of the New Testament, the New Covenant, is found in one individual, and that is Christ. And that's why when we read the rest of chapter 1, really, and especially these next few verses, we see that that the author of Hebrews is highlighting the importance and the supremacy of Christ so that we can better understand the importance of this final revelation. These next couple of verses, they're going to demonstrate Christ's superiority so that we can better understand that this New Testament, the new covenant that has come in Christ is superior. The, the New Testament, the, the This final declaration from God, this final revelation from God is superior because the the subject is superior. The focus is superior. It's all focused on Christ. Now we have revelation of God becoming man. Now we have revelation of the fact that God has, has incarnated himself into human history. That is why the final revelation is better. It's because the the creator enters into the creation. Because the one who formed humanity now enters into human form. He's the heir of all creation and and yet he, he joins the creation and lives a life in their midst. 
Once you understand the beauty of Christ, that helps us to understand that this new revelation, the final revelation, is far better than the previous. And so, let's look at these next couple verses. Because here we see the author just highlighting the supremacy of Christ, the importance of Christ, the magnitude of Christ, the personhood of Christ. So first, in verse uh, 2 here, we see that the Son is appointed the heir of all things. He's appointed the heir of all things. What does that mean? It means that the one who created everything one day will inherit everything. He, he owns all things. He owns creation. He's the one who will inherit humanity and rule over them. He's the one for whom all things are created. All things were created for Christ. He's the heir, the heir of the universe. But not only that, we also see here in in verse 2 that he created the world, through whom also he created the world. So, So the same one who entered into history was the one who created everything. The creator one day will inherit his creation. And that is who this final revelation is all about. The creator, the final heir, the one who, who reigns supreme. He's the one who brings in, he's the one who ushers in this final revelation. And that is why this word is superior to what preceded it. Now, let's move to verse 3. I've already pointed out that in verse 3, the, the primary verb here, the primary emphasis of verse 3 is the fact that Christ sat down at the majesty on high. Here we see the significance and importance of Jesus is still being emphasized, though. At the beginning of the verse, let me just, let me just read this first. So verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and upholds the universe um, by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I want to point out that the punctuation here I know I'm getting grammatical, but hey, the punctuation here in verse 3, if you have an ESV, it almost makes it out as though these are two separate ideas. You have his personhood. He's the radiance of the glory of God. You have the fact that that he is um, the exact imprint of his nature. And then you have this period. And then it goes on to say making uh, purifications for sins. But in the original language here, this is one thought. This is all connected. And so we need to consider how these thoughts are connected. If we look at the grammar here, it's all one argument. You see, at the beginning of the verse, the preacher of, the, of Hebrews is heightening our understanding of who Christ is so that he can make his point more impactful. Because once you understand who the subject is, that's going to help you understand the importance of what's going on here. And so the beauty and the significance of Christ is highlighted here to show how significant it is that Christ has sat down at the right hand of God after making purifications for sin. Here's the flow of thought. Here's how verse 3 works. Jesus, the glorious incarnate God-man, sat down at the right hand of God after making purification for sin. That is the, the thought being expressed here in verse 3. You see, Jesus would not have the right to sit in God's presence on his throne unless he was the incarnate God-man, unless he was the radiance of God's glory, unless he was the exact imprint of God's nature. Christ would not be able to make purifications for sin unless he was the eternal, infinite God. You see, it takes an eternal and an infinite God in order to bear the weight of eternal and infinite consequences. Sin has infinite consequences, and it takes an infinite God to bear the weight of that. Christ is the only one who could accomplish this. So in light of the context, let's look at what the preacher says about Jesus. Because truly, what we have here is astonishing. I mean, this is baffling stuff. 
First, we see that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. When he comes into the room, God's very glory enters into the room. He's not just a a reflection of God's glory. If you like grammar, right, that would be a passive idea. It's not as though he, he dwells in God's presence, and when he comes to earth, he just reflects God's glory. He is God's glory. God's glory actually radiates from Christ himself. When he enters in the room, it's God's glory entering into the room. He's not a reflection. He is the radiance. He's the substance. He's the source from which God's glory is shining. He produces glory. And not just any glory. He produces the glory of God. We also see here that he is the exact representation, the exact essence of God. I mean, that is baffling. This is what distinguishes Christianity from every other other religion, right? From Judaism and Islam and Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not some angelic figure. He is the essence of God incarnate. He is God in the form of man. The author of Hebrews here could not be more precise at this point. You'll hear people, I don't know if you've ever spent time interacting with with people who are arguing against the, the, the deity of Christ. But this could not be more clear. He couldn't get more vivid. He's, he's saying plainly that God is, the, is in essence manifest in the person of Christ. Not only that, but he upholds all things by the word of his power. So we just saw in verse 2 that he created all things. And here in verse 3, we see that he sustains everything. Christ is sustaining the universe as we speak. While he was an infant in the manger, sustaining the universe. While on the cross and his own creation is mocking him, he's giving them breath. He sustains everything by the word of his power. And he always has. And he always will. Christ is glorious. Christ is glorious. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who came into the creation. This is the one who formed mankind and then became a human being. And once we understand that, now we can fully appreciate the fact that he made purification for sin. He made purification for sin, and right after doing so, he sat down in a declaration to the entire universe that what he did on the cross was effective. It accomplished what he intended it to accomplish. He is the one who the entire story of Easter is all about. Christ is the incarnate word of God who made purification by sin by offering his life up as a sacrifice for his own creation. God died in the place of man. Just let that linger for a second. God died in the place of man. God bore the infinite weight of sin. God bore sin, our sin. He bore all of our sin. If you call on the name of Christ, your sin is laid upon Christ. Think about that for a moment. God bore our sin. The eternal God came came into human likeness in order to bear the consequences of our failures. And after he did so, He made a statement, the most profound statement he could possibly make, by sitting down. By sitting down on a throne in order to declare that what I just intended to accomplish has been achieved. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high declaring his accomplishments are effective. His work 
is finished. There is no more sin to be bore by anyone. He bore the sin. So if you turn to him in faith, you receive the gift of his righteousness. If you turn to him in faith, you don't have to pay the consequences for your sin, for your actions. It was laid on Christ. The war, if there even was a war, is over. He accomplished what he intended. And because of that, we cannot turn to any other source for redemption. Once you start to understand what this is saying right here, it helps us to understand why the author of Hebrews is laying out such intense warnings throughout the course of this book. It's because the consequences are eternal. The consequences have eternal ramifications. You flee from the one who bore the eternal consequences of sin, and then you have to bear the consequences of your sin. That's the message of Hebrews. The entire book should be understood through these couple of statements. So he delivers the final word, greater than the word that came through Moses. He, he brings the final purification of sins, greater than the purifications of sin that were offered by the high priests of the Old Testament. We see that he, he brings us to a better promised land. By offering this sacrifice, he delivers us to a better, a better promised land where we can actually find rest. Remember when Joshua delivered the people into, into the promised land? Did they find rest there? No. Far from it. Christ has made a way towards a new and a better dwelling place, a dwelling place in the presence of God. And so this is the reason that this update is not optional. The entire system has been made obsolete. The former system has been put away. It's no longer in operation. So you can't flee to, what you, to, the, to the way you once lived. If any of you are struggling with Judaism, you can't flee there. <laughs> and if you try to flee to your old lifestyles, you will find it futile and pointless because the only place where you will find redemption from sin, the only access to the presence of God that you will find is found in the person of Christ. The only rest that you will find is in the person of Christ. And so let's dwell there. Let's seek him and let's ask him to grant us these gifts that he has purchased on our behalf. Father, we trust you and we are so thankful for the fact that you have bore witness to a final revelation in the person of your son. We are beneficiaries of what you have accomplished. And we just anticipate what you have for us here in the book of Hebrews. We can't wait to learn what you have in store for us. We want to, to truly grasp the supremacy, the superiority and the glory of your Son. Help us to do so. Give us eyes to see and, and hearts to, to enjoy and find satisfaction in your Son. Lord, we pray, pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.